0: listening to The Economist Asks, I'm Anne McElvoy. Only a few artists and designers in history have created an immediate association with one particular colour. There's Yves Klein Blue, Sunflower Yellow for Van Gogh, and in the world of fashion, Orange for Hermes. And I should be presenting this in Coco Chanel's Little Black Dress. But that list is incomplete without Pantone 18 tp Lacquered onto the sole of a towering stiletto, this vivid red is an unmistakable calling card of my guest today, Christiane Louboutin. Over the last 40 years, his shoes have become icons of both high fashion and pop culture. They've clad the feet of Carrie Bradshaw in Sex in the City and been name-checked by musicians from J Lo to Cardi B. Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul herself, was even buried in a fire-red pair. But in an age when what it means to be feminine, sexy and fashionable is being redefined, where does the stiletto stand? I've come to Paris during Fashion Week for the presentation of Christian Louboutin's new collection and for the opening of The Exhibitionist, the biggest ever retrospective of his work at the Palais de la Porte d'Orée. Christian Louboutin, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. When I first entered your exhibition, I noticed a big sign, and it says the opposite of anything you might expect from you and your work. It says no high heels. What's the story behind that?
1: Well, it's actually a sign sign that I was seeing when I was going to that museum as a kid. When I was like 9, 10, 11, etc., I could understand that it was a sign showing the silhouette of a shoe but it was a 1950 shoes and we are now in the 70s so I look at this drawing as a kid and I'm thinking what the hell is that drawing? So I started to actually reproduce that silhouette of a 1950s shoe without knowing that it actually was a real shoe possible This drawing made me understand that you could actually draw things which are not existing and then maybe it exists after. So I own a lot to that drawing in a way.
0: And your love affair with the shoe doesn't really begin with the shoe as much as it it does with music, musical theatre, with decoration. You come at it sort of almost backwards from the art to the shoe rather than the other way around. Am I right?
1: Yeah. Now w- one can say that the shoe belongs to the world of fashion, but I did not really belong to the world of fashion. I I'd never had a dream to work in the fashion industry. My thing was to design pretty shoes.
0: I'm sitting looking at you now, and right behind you is a big pair of black stiletto Louboutin shoes. and I almost get the impression you don't move without them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> They're here to Come on, let's have a look at them. Then. Perfect. Explain the gradation.
0: Well, this is an extremely high stiletto, but it's a beautiful uh, black, shiny Louboutin shoe with the red. So, sort of classic of the genre. It's a bit like going to Monet and finding he's got water lilies.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, they're here because exactly like the drawing I first saw, the shoe is first a silhouette. Every shoe brings a shadow. But when you're a shoe designer, there's something which is, you're very happy to accomplish Well, it's when you design a beautiful pump. Why? It's because a pump, it's like a face without makeup in a way. You know, a shoe is a last. A last is basically a silhouette is going to give the heel, the shape, the arch and the front. So once you have that, the best way to try it is to design the most simple shoe.
0: What's the hardest bit of the design? It's to have
1: the good last. A good last, the form, the shape of the shoe, is almost where if you were sculpting a a face. In order to be able to see if the face of the shoe, which is going to be a range of shoes, different, etc., you are sculpting a last, and from that last you do a pump. And if the pump is good, then you know that there is a huge amount of design that you can do on that face.
0: And, of course, the most famous thing to the outside world is the, the beautiful... Red sole, it's even got its kind of trademark color now. You fought for your unmistakable red sole, including a copyright victory in the European Court of Justice in 2018. Why so important to preserve? Let's call it Louboutin Red, seeing as everyone knows this. It's, it's
1: important when you have a brand, and your brand is really also. Has very specific identity. It's not a design, but it's definitely, it makes part of the identity of my shoes.
0: It's a calling card, it's incredibly distinctive. As you say, you were prepared to sort of fight for it in terms of your business, but is it also a bit of a limitation?
1: No, no. You know, I think that, for instance, you know, the red is coming from a very simple thing. As a first season, so I started my company in 91. So all of 91, 92, the souls were either beige or either black. And then it's in 93, I was designing the new collection. And a set of drawings were inspired by pop art. So all my drawing was really bright in colors, etc. And so I was having in my hands my drawing and i was having in the other hand the prototype the first shoe but something was better in the drawing i just couldn't understand exactly what and then at one point the girl who had tried the shoes next to me in italy in the factory was polishing her nails When I looked at the shoe, from the profile, it looked exactly like the drawing. From the front, it looked like the drawing. It's only when I took it from the back Mm. that there was a big, almost like a black stain, Mm. which was not belonging to my drawing. So I took her nail polish and I removed the black. So it's not that I wanted to add a color. I just wanted to remove the black. But then suddenly it popped up. It looked like my drawings. I had the vitality of my drawing. The red came in a way almost like an accident, a type of happy accident. I thought, okay, colored soles look beautiful. I may do colored soles and different colors. And then coming back to Paris where I had my first store, I was looking at the client and most women at the time, this is ninety-one, ninety-two, were only wearing black. You know, it was almost like a manifesto. I said to this woman, why is that? She said, I don't like colors. I said, but you have colors. And she says, no, I only wear black. I said, but look at your lips and look at your nails. They have red. And she's saying immediately, oh, but this is different. Red is different. If you don't like color, you don't like orange, you don't like green, mm. you don't like yellow. Red goes between. Le rouge et noir. Le rouge it seems et noir. Seems to exactly. work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if
0: it works in literature, it can work in shoes. The business that you, you've built is now it's a multinational. You take your inspiration, as you see in the exhibition, from around the world What's the balance to your mind between remaining recognizably a French shoemaker? We're sitting here in your your office and it feels very much rooted in Paris and rooted in the streets around us. It's not some great glass and steel conglomerate mm-hmm. so what is the balance between that and feeling like a global brand which is going to take its inspiration from anywhere on the planet?
1: well you know you just have to stay rooted. I started my company with my two best friends. It's an independent house, and it makes a big difference. But when you're independent, you draw the line wherever you want, but it's done according to my capacities. I think it's important to have your own life. I just couldn't work in a, another way.
0: And there's been a tendency towards consolidation uh, in the fashion industry. So we've seen LVMH buy up a, a lot of, of brands, very good quality brands, who've in the end decided that they wanted. to, the investment and the support? Have you ever been tempted by LVMH, Gucci, or another big multi-brand? You know, some days
1: you may be very tired of things. There is a lot of effort that you've been putting and, you know, all these nice proposal of people could actually be interesting. It, but um, But at the end, there is something, you know, freedom. If freedom has a price, it has also all its best qualities. You do what you want. So yes, of course, it could be tempting to sell your company. And I don't say that anybody who is, is doing that is like is wrong or something. But if you don't need, why would you do it?
0: Let's talk about your shoes and what they signal about femininity and changing views of femininity. They are, of course, shoes mm-hmm. mainly for women, mm-hmm. designed by man. When you look at the borderline there between style and eroticism and even fetishism, and you have a whole... A corridor in the exhibition. exactly, Which really. says, just so we can't miss it, fetishism. That sort of borderline, I suppose, between the elegant and the overtly sexual. How do you feel about it and, and how do you negotiate that in the shoe?
1: I sort of think that shoe has more to give than just walking. So, you know, some shoes, the first element for a shoe is actually really working, but you can actually stretch those distances. You know, shoe can have and has different meaning. So, as a shoe designer, it's interesting to explore those boundaries. So, it's just an object for me where I can sort of put feelings, try to put feelings, express some feelings, which have nothing to see with actually the shoe, which is done, to be worn, to walk etc which is an important
0: Well that's true generally isn't it? If you look at some of my favourite pieces from the exhibition would be the deconstruction, you have shoes with heels which aren't touching the ground Mm -hmm. which got a beautiful string heel one twisted gold string heel that just doesn't touch the ground, you couldn't walk in it I understand that, that is the the desirability that you can't have but which is beautiful. The fetishism is something else and I wonder what the difference is, I'm looking at a shoe in front of me here, the difference sometimes the vertical ballet pump mm-hmm. it's unwalkably high but it's not the unwalkability that says it's a fetishistic shoe is it it's something else
1: no 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 you know the part of the exhibition which is called fetishism is is coming from a simple thing so it's photographs of David Lynch the filmmaker and I designed the shoes and David did the pictures it just started by the thing that I had in mind that you know sometimes I hear oh I can't walk in these shoes because they are too high etc and which I perfectly understand, And I'm designing high heels, but I'm also designing flat shoes. Every woman has different at different moments. So, you know, I design from very flat shoes to mid heels to high heels, et cetera. But I mean, it's not that I have a fantasy about just high heels. I just wanted to design shoes which were not made to walk at all. I wouldn't hear, but I can't walk in the shoes because I'm not made to walk. They're just like a representation of objects of desire.
0: So that, I think, is the part of the exhibition that might divide people more, if I'm going to be, be honest with you, in the sense that there is something absolutely mesmeric and sexy about a high heel. But the fetishism and the way that it is displayed, particularly at a time when we talk more about the male gaze, more about the presentation of women. And I wondered if, you know, is there just a slightly different vibe around this, say, talking to you in Paris? uh, We're talking in a week when Me Too has been in the news and and, and Time's Up in the United States. Perhaps, in a sense, you may think that a lot of the Anglo-Saxon world is a bit more puritanical. Mm
1: -hmm. I'm going to ask you one thing, because this question, I'm not going to lie to you, has been asked many times to me. Now that there is Me Too, what do you feel about High Heels? I always give this answer. I don't understand that question. As you ask me that question, why do you ask me that question? What for you is the relationship between a high heels and me too?
0: I don't have any issue with high heels being in contrast to to me too. Mm -hmm. I'm quite fond of both actually. I think that's a slightly different question to the presentation of, of how far you go on that, you know, the naked model with their eyes blacked out and the shoe at the bottom of that. That, to me, is a slightly different question okay. to your challenge, which is, is, is there a contradiction between, effectively, between feminism and the high heel? I would say not, but I, some people mm-hmm. would say there is. That is a borderline and has it moved too far in one direction?
1: know. So to go back to the photograph of David Lynch, when I show him the shoes, I say some shoes are some object of desire in the fetishist way, but there is a lot of type of fetishism. It has nothing, for instance, with bandage. You know, some people are mixing bandage and fetishism. You can fetishize on anything. It's in general the representation of a way that you adorn or you love someone, and then it's been projected on an object. There is a beautiful Oram Pamuk book where this man is, is madly in love with this woman, and he's been collecting everything, 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 which remains him of that woman when their love story ended. There is a museum in Istanbul. It's fantastic. It's a museum we- of
0: memory that the writer exactly, Orhan exactly. Pamuk has in Istanbul.
1: Exactly. So again, that's totally a fetishist idea and a fetishist gesture. You yeah, know, not quite build. in the same way. Huh? So fetishism has a lot of territories to be explored and a lot of territory. My work is shoes. So I've been designing type of different objects, fetishist objects, in different directions. Then I asked David to photograph them, and he says, I would like to keep a type of mystery and secret, so it should be on girls, naked, so it's about their bodies, there should be dancers, so the expression is coming from the body, so it shouldn't be a model. Dancers are the best people to express a, a, a lot of modes of expression through their bodies.
0: You, you, you're might being quite polite, you probably possibly think Anglo-Saxon world's a bit too prudish, or becoming being, too British, um,
1: being French, uh, being French. I don't want to say anything against Anglo-Saxon, otherwise it looks like the war has never ended since medieval times.
0: You're not taking us back to Agincourt. <laughs> but seriously, do you, do you think that? I sometimes do think that, that the societies on these matters move it. They may appear in a more globalised world to be similar, but they do move at different paces and have different prefer- yes, preferences. Yes. Mm-hmm. And perhaps I feel that the conversation I'm having with you here, which you'll be engaging in very generously, might be a little different if we were sitting right now in New York. I think
1: so. I think so. You see, for instance, when I look at everything which is tabloid in England, I'm not shocked because I can, it's very difficult to shock me in any ways. But I'm quite surprised by the amount of trash which is in English tabloids, for instance. When I see that this one has a girlfriend or whatever, I'm just not interested. I don't want to know about it. This is not, you know... I'm not interested in the sexuality of people when it's just to trash them. I'm just not interested. And that's, it's true, a very French attitude. You know, we may know we had a president who had two wives and then sort of everybody knew it. Nobody cared, you know. That's his life. Let him do his job. And what is private is private. So I think that, you know, uh, there is a sense of, yeah, less puritanism, but also probably a take on liberty, which is different.
0: In the English, you're Puritan, are
1: you? In some ways, yes. And in some other ways, absolutely not. Kinky. <laughs> 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 and it was an interesting a question. That
0: and was I'm even going to tell <laughs> you, the most extreme on. shoes,
1: the most extreme shoes in terms of height and in terms of kinkiness that I've been developing over the last 30 years, and this is not the only shoes I'm doing, but I'm talking of that as you've been putting me on that subject. The places we've been, we've been selling them the most was Always England and Switzerland.
0: Switzerland.
1: And England.
0: Yeah, but kinky Switzerland. (laughs) I had a lot of questions that came in when I said I was interviewing you. There were a few that came in and this was was one that, that I thought was interesting. The question that's been asked more generally, which is changing gender norms. Are they a threat to your customer base or do they free you up in terms of your creative potential
1: you know gender norms has been in my brand very very early that's why for instance when we do high heel shoes and even flat uh, flat shoes for women not all of them but really a big part we do all the way to size 45 because from a quite an early moment i've been seeing men and i've been seeing gender fluid people trying on women's shoes and so it made sense to extend instead of staying to the size 40 or 41 to go all the way to 45. Same way when we first opened the men's store, I realized that small sizes were gone. Loafers and sneakers were gone very, very quickly. We have a lot of women buying the loafers and buying the sneakers. So we have to do more in depth the small sizes sort of small sizes for men and bigger sizes for women. You, you mentioned so, sneakers,
0: and in some ways, when I saw that you know, you, you were also working in the the dad sneaker and the kind of reinvention of of the chunky trainer with the the white sports socks, a sort of look, mm-hmm. led by Balenciaga. But it's a bit of a challenge to the classic... Elegance, even the elegance with a twist, and the elegance with an edge that someone like you represents. I mean, does your heart sink when you see a trainer?
1: No, not at all. The first trainer that I did called SoMed One Hundred Meters. It's called was from uh, two thousand. So I've been doing sneakers and I've been doing sporty shoes for a long time. It's just, it's just the only difference is that you know it requires different factories. And because the, the making of sneakers is a different thing that when you have like a sole, you know, like a leather sole, etcetera,
0: It's a very challenging time. The Fashion Week is a, affected, like many other businesses, by coronavirus. And how much does that worry you in terms of the the global outlook for a business like yours, which really needs grand exhibitions, lots of praise, Fashion Week, a big moment for you?
1: Well, you know, right now, the problem with the coronavirus is arriving, is just arriving so i don't know know, if it's going to last you know some things come and go so i hope it goes as quick as it arrived but it hasn't affected us right now it starts to affect some supplies because for instance all our shoes and bags are made in italy only the espadrilles are made in spain as it should be but you have some components like glue which is coming from China, for instance. For instance, when we do some windows, I have 145 stores, I think, something like that. When we do some windows, etc., a part of the fabrication is done in Asia. So that, you know, we are going to see may be affected soon.
0: And what about sustainability? It's something that has sort of come up very fast, so sort of fast and furiously, really, In you when know, I'm mm-hmm. doing interviews with the big fashion houses, almost a kind of desperate sense to, to kind of get on, on board with it. Do you think it's something where shoemakers like yourself will need to pivot towards more vegan uh, you know, materials. And how far do you go with sustainability?
1: We started a while ago to look at things which so-called sustainability. But to me, sustainability, again, it's a big word. So you have to be very careful. I got asked by some people to do fake leather. And I've been studying fake leather. In order to do fake leather, it costs much more money. You actually have to have plants growing, so to have this type of plants growing, you end up you know killing trees and forests, so to do a new production of things i 'm pretty much of a serious person, so i'm not like surfing on fashion wave, so suddenly it 's all about sustainability. We are studying right now the possibilities to work in a different way. But I just don't want to dive into a thing and then, you know, you realize four years after that your new elements versus leather are actually even more dangerous for the planet because the counterfact is that you're raising a part of Brazil forest to do your supposedly sustainable things. We're studying that. I've always been concerned, for instance, by recycling. So everything we've been doing I've always had an eye on recycling. Recycling, I know that I can Sort of walk around. I know what I'm talking about. I know where it goes, etc. So I can, in a way, put my foot on. Sustainability needs to be studied instead of going just like you know ships in the same direction and discover. Oh God, you know what? It's actually
0: very bad. How much did you notice the shoes that people wear? Did you notice what passed you on the stairs? on the way in when i was wearing my reading glasses so i didn't look up and see you you passed me would you notice what i was wearing
1: no because i always it's it's a bit of a game for me it's an exercise too when i meet a person i never look at the shoes and i sort of make myself an idea of what the person is probably wearing and then only after a conversation so which gives me a bit of an idea of the personality then i'm thinking okay she has short boots on she has a slide, she has a strict pump, etc. And then I look.
0: Very unfair question. Meeting me early-ish in the morning here in Paris, obviously on a work trip, looking a bit, not exactly, probably for for the catwalk. I'm I'm not done for the catwalk this morning, it'd be fair to say. Which Louboutins do I have?
1: So I would say either a mid pump, probably not in suede, and uh, But if it's in suede, it's black suede. But I would say a short boot.
0: I don't have a short boot, but I do have an, a very old, treasured, now probably a bit battered, almost 20-year-old black suede. Ah, you pump.
1: see? I thought black suede. But thinking of that, I It's like I going thought,
0: to a clairvoyant.
1: Thinking of that, I thought, I don't remember a black suede mid-pump of the season. That's why I was like... I would see black suede through the personality or through also what you wear. But I was thinking, I don't see any black suede that I've been doing lately. But I was thinking black suede. No,
0: you were you were in the right, well, but it was a very Good. long time ago. Very, but, very but often I they do, they I do hang around, don't they, if you look after them. <laughs> <laughs> if I would look under the desk now, would I be surprised by your footwear?
1: What do you think I'm wearing?
0: Oh, I led with my chin on that one, didn't I? Um, I think is you're in casual dress you might be in very nicely designed trainers oh,
1: it's not trainers
0: how on earth do we describe those they were a, a sort of cowboy brogue
1: <laughs> i love the idea of cowboy brogue
0: <laughs> go on you describe them you're better at describing shoes than me
1: so it's a lace-up derby and it has just like a little studs round studs almost like you know is that you can find on paravent on screens you know, those 19th century, 18th century paravent with the tapestry nails. So it's a shoe bordered with tapestry nails in, in a black calf. Elegant. Absolute, and absolute, English absolute, socks.
0: Oh, well, there you go. Well, at least we got the <laughs> socks. Christiane Louboutin, thank you very much for joining us. Thank
1: you and have a good day.
0: I will do in my flat shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd love to know what you think. Does the future of fashion wear, fire-soled stilettos or dad sneakers... Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And for more of our journalism, you can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in Paris, this is The Economist.